0: Let's turn now to God's holy and inspired word as we read from the book of Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20. There's a great deal in that chapter, and obviously we're not going to be dealing with all of that, but I will point out particularly the passage that we'll be focusing on, and I won't reread that after we read the chapter, but it will be basically verses 11 through 15. That's the last paragraph, the last portion of chapter 20. So this is the Apostle John who is uh, speaking here, writing these words. uh, Of course, inspired by the Spirit, he was receiving this revelation from Christ himself while John was exiled on the island of Patmos. And uh, while there, as you know, the book of Revelation then basically is the uh, content of the visions that the Lord gave him there. And now he records this vision as we read in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit. And shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests to God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he bless it to our hearts as we reflect on a portion of this chapter. And I noted in the uh, order of worship here that I'm connecting this uh, message tonight to Lord's Day 19, a portion of it, and I'll just read that for you in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is uh, found, of course, in the back of the Psalter Hymnal. If you want to check it out for yourself, you can do that on page uh, 26 in the back. But here is the uh, the question and answer that I really want to uh, to read and for you to think about, and I'll refer to uh, somewhat in our in our message. It asks the question, and it's, it's uh, explaining the various parts of the Apostles' Creed, which we recited earlier. Uh, and uh, there's also, of course, that portion of that creed that says that we believe in the judgment, that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And so it says here, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the answer is, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies in mine, he will condemn to everlasting punishment. But me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. That's the confession of the child of God. And uh, we'll uh, again... Uh, make some reference to the way the catechism presents that truth for us uh, here in uh, the Lord's Day 19. But uh, dear people of God, virtually every day, as you know, we hear or read in the news about persons who are accused of committing a crime or some wrongdoing and must stand on trial before a judge. And sometimes that trial lasts only for a day. A lot of times it can go on for weeks on end, even months sometimes, particularly if the person being tried is a high-profile person or it's a high-profile case. Then often these trials can go on and on. But in the end, it must all lead up to this, a sentence. Yes, all on trial at some point stand before a judge to be pronounced either guilty or innocent. And as you probably know, that's often a dramatic moment. Family and friends of the accused often are there, as well as family and friends of, of the accusers. And they're there to, to hear that final pronouncement, that sentence of the judge. Because the judge's sentence, including the penalty that he meets out, is the end of the matter. Unless appeals, of course, are subsequently made, and that can be done, and a sentence is reversed. But even then, a final sentence must eventually be given by the judge, be it guilty or not guilty. This afternoon, we want to consider a judge's sentence, which is truly the end of the matter, and of which there can be no further appeal. And In addition, it pertains to a trial that will involve all people including all of us. The world's greatest trial is yet to come, in comparison to which all earthly trials are as nothing. It will occur when persons who have ever lived, all who have ever lived on earth and died, will come to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our Lord, and receive from Him the sentence that is due them. It will happen on the day... That the Bible calls the Day of Judgment, or we often simply call it Judgment Day. That day is coming. As we confessed a while ago in the Apostles' Creed, we believe, this is one of our key beliefs, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And what a day that will be! In fact, Christ's return itself will, of course, also be an awesome event when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, when Jesus Christ descends with his armies of angels in all his power and glory, that alone will be an earth-shaking event, including, by the way, in a literal event, in a literal way of speaking. Because the entire cosmos, Scripture indicates, will then be shaken, as Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24. When he comes again in power and glory, This entire universe will come to a violent end. And that's why that final day of all time of history is called in the Bible by more than one name. It's called the day, the day of the Lord. It's called the day of Christ. It's called that day. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's called the last day. But now what I find interesting is that the Heidelberg Catechism, from which I just read in Lord's Day 19, focuses on only one aspect, basically on only one aspect of that day. The only question it asks pertaining to the return of Jesus Christ is this, what comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? Notice it only speaks here of the final judgment that is to occur on that last day when Christ returns. And also notice that it speaks of that judgment as a source of comfort for the Christian. And why that is so, I think, will become clear to you as we especially come uh, towards the end of our message this afternoon. But you know that stands in contrast to how many of you, the judgment day, many people call this doomsday. Many people don't even want to think about a final judgment day to come. For them, that's really not real. It won't really happen. It's, it's, it's fiction. Even among Christians, among those at least who profess to be Christians, there are many who don't want to even think about that day. They rather not focus on it. They, they may focus on the return of Christ. Many love to talk about the glorious return of Christ, this second coming in glowing language. But if you would ask them, okay, and are you looking forward to judgment day? Well, they may be a little hesitant for a bit here. They don't like to think about judgment day to come. Somehow that scares them. I'm not sure if there's maybe someone here who may have that same feeling. And if you do, if that whole idea of a judgment day to come scares you, I hope that before we're done tonight, you will see that judgment day is actually going to be a glorious day and a blessed day for all those who believe in Christ. A day certainly not to be dreaded, but a day to be eagerly anticipated. Now let's consider this subject of the judgment day, then, or the final judgment, by asking two main questions, as you see in the bulletin. The first one is, what will that day be like? What will it be like? And the second question is going to be, why is that day necessary? What is its purpose? Now, first of all, what will the final judgment day be like? And while well, the Apostle John saw a vision of it, which he received in Revelation, or which he recorded, rather, in Revelation chapter 20. And let's just notice a few things that John was given to see here in the portion of the chapter that is our focus. First, he saw the judge. He saw a judge on the throne. He writes in verse 11, that then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So this was an awe-inspiring scene that Christ gave John to see. When you and I see earthly thrones, uh, which sit earthly kings or queens, they're usually pretty impressive as well. They're intended, of course, to fill people with a sense of of awe and, and of the majesty and the glory of that person who occupies that throne. But this great white throne that John saw and the person who sat on it was was so majestic, was so glorious and awesome, that he records in his vision that even the earth and the sky fled away. Because all the attention was focused now on that throne. And no wonder, because who was the person sitting on that great white throne? Well, this was the great throne of God himself. Now, John does not specifically tell us whether it was God the Father or God the Son, who sat on that throne later on in Revelation 22, verse 1. John speaks of seeing the throne of God and of the Lamb. Actually, we can say that both of them occupied that great white throne because the Father and the Son are, of course, together one God, along with the Holy Spirit, And so it is, in some instances of the Bible, you read that the Father, God the Father, will be the judge of all men. In other places, it says that God the Son, the exalted Christ, will be the judge of all men. In Acts 10, verse 42, we read about Christ. It is He who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul writes, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So who sat on this throne? I think, you know, the best way to understand it is that God the Father, God the Father will exercise that final judgment through His Son. It's the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Son whom He has placed on His own right hand. God has given to Him the authority and the privilege of exercising judgment. And when you think of that, that Christ is the one who will be the judge on that last great day, you can begin already to see why actually this is a great assurance for Christians. That's what the Catechism brings out in in Lord's Day 19 in its statement, in all my sorrows and persecutions with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before has offered himself for my sake To the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven. So that this glorious and this majestic king and judge sitting on that great white throne is not going to be some austere person who's a total stranger to those standing before him, at least to us, certainly not. This person will be our own blessed Savior. The one, as the catechism says, endured God's judgment for our sins, who was tried and condemned on this earth, even though he was innocent, that he might then die for us on the cross and remove the divine curse of sin from us. And so always keep that in mind. The judge is Christ. Christ, our Savior, who already has stood in our place before the judgment seat of God and delivered us from the wrath of God. He's the one who gave his life for his sheep and knows every one of them by name. And then, still talking about what it will be like at the Judgment Day, let's notice who are the judged? Who are the ones who will come to stand before this majestic judge on the great white throne? And I've already indicated the answer, but listen again to what John saw in his vision as he records it in verse 12 of our text, He says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. You see, this final judgment occurs after some other things have already taken place when Christ returns from heaven. One is that all persons who have ever lived and died on this earth will be raised from the dead. There will be, in other words, a general resurrection of the bodies of all people, those of believers, but also of unbelievers, young and old, those who died in infancy, those who died at a ripe old age, they will all rise from their graves. And then they, as well as those who are living, who are alive on earth when Jesus returns, then all of them will be caught up, says Scripture, to meet their descending Lord as He descends to earth. And after that, at some point, they will all come to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As John writes in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death in Hades. Hades, the realm of the dead, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And what this indicates is that no matter how famous or infamous, however mighty or weak a person may have been on earth, every one of them, will come to stand before this divine judge. Every dictator, world ruler, every worldly entertainer and atheist even, every well-known and unknown person, and even, even the devil himself and all of his demons, they will all come to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When you think about that, what a tremendous multitude that's going to be to appear before the throne of Christ. In fact, it's, it's really inconceivable. Just out of curiosity, I, I, last week I, I Googled the question on my computer. Simply, I simply said, how many people have lived on earth since the beginning of time? And uh, the immediate answer that popped up on the screen was this. Although some seven billion individuals are alive on earth today, an estimated 100 billion more have inhabited the planet since the beginning. And I don't know at all how, how old that estimate is or how close to fact it is. It's, of course, a, a number really that is, that is increasing exponentially every single day. But now can you imagine 100 billion people standing before the judgment seat of Christ? Granted, we, we don't know exactly how that will happen. We, we may even think to ourselves, well, now wait a minute, how can Christ judge every single person who's ever lived on earth? That, that would take an eternity. But those are, those are really human questions to which the Bible gives us no detailed answers. Obviously, this is going to be a supernatural, a supernatural event. All we know is this. Everyone will appear before the judge. Nobody will be exempt and escape that final judgment. And then going on to another point under what this day will be like, how will all those persons be judged by Christ? That is to say, what will be the standard of his judgment? And John writes this in verses 12 and 13, and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. Now, what are those books? We don't have to think that Christ will have literal books in his hands, which he then opens and which records every deed that every person has ever done. Keep in mind, of course, this is a vision that John received from Christ. What these books simply refer to or mean is that Christ is omniscient. He knows everything that we have ever done, good or bad. Our lives and the lives of all people are like an open book before him. He has an infinite mind. He knows all things. He is God. And so the judge will be able to judge all people with a full knowledge of what they have all done. And it says he will judge all persons according to their works or deeds. Now, you may ask in your minds, but doesn't the Bible say that we are saved not by what we have done? That is, not by our works. Aren't we saved by grace alone? Why does Christ judge us according to our works? And well, it's certainly true that we are saved by the grace of God alone, and no sinner can earn salvation by his deeds. But when the Bible speaks of all men being judged according to what they have done, we have to keep two things in mind. One is, that would first of all, of course, include whether they have indeed believed in Christ, in Christ alone. We will be judged, first of all, on whether we have indeed trusted in Him as our only hope of salvation, or whether you are a person who's trusted in himself, or in his own good deeds, or in in something else. So first of all, that's included, of course, here. Whether that person is truly one who has believed in Christ. But secondly, we will also be judged according to how we have lived. Why is that? Because that will determine the measure or the degree of our future reward or punishment. Because there are different degrees of reward and punishment that God will mete out. Those who, after believing in him, have served him faithfully, will be rewarded accordingly. Uh, I think of the parable of the talents that Jesus once told. You remember that parable, I'm sure, the parable of the talents. The servants in the parables, you recall, received different rewards from the king when he returned. Some received a greater reward than others. Though, to be sure, it's by the grace of God alone that we receive even our rewards. Not because of our own worthiness but Christ will reward us in his goodness and grace. On the other hand, those who have not believed in Christ will be lost, all of them, to receive eternal punishment. And yet the Bible also teaches that some will be punished more severely than others, how according to what they have done. Jesus even once said that it will be more tolerable In the day of judgment, this is always a striking statement to me, uh, more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who have rejected him and refused to believe in him. Those who have never heard the gospel will not be punished as severely as those who have heard the gospel but have rejected it and refused to believe it. And so in the final judgment, justice will be meted out to every single person. Christ is judge. He, just, he will not overlook anything that we have done, said, or thought, whether it be good or bad. And you know, that should certainly prompt all of us to live, to live as best as we can to the glory of our God, to be rich in good deeds, to be faithful in Christ's service. Wherever we go, we are called to be his people, to serve him faithfully. And also in all of our actions, at work, at home, wherever it may be, we are called to serve our king. We have to do it as diligently, as best we can do so. We will be rewarded accordingly. But there's another side to this as well. Because John also adds that another book was opened by the judge on that white throne. And that was the book of life. He talks about the book of life here. What is that book? And that book is, as it were, the record of all who are saved by Christ and will inherit eternal life. And so when Jesus Christ, you see, opens up our lives, he not only looks at what we have done, good and bad, but then he also looks into that book of life. And what does that book say? It's as simply that in spite of all of our sins, in spite of our total unworthiness before God, we're saved by his grace. Our sins are washed away by his precious blood. And therefore, as a judge, he will say, when he sees our name in that book of life, he will say, you're not guilty. You're righteous in my sight. You may enter into the kingdom and receive eternal life. Yes, if our name is in the book of life, it means we're assured of life forever. It always makes me think when I hear that expression, the book of life of, of that hymn, I think you, many of you know that hymn, or at least uh, you are older certainly would know it. Is my name written there on the page, white and fair? In the book of thy kingdom, is my name written there? And that's a good question that all of us must be asking ourselves. Even tonight, is my name written there? in that book of life. And so what will happen on Judgment Day, we'll seen it briefly here together. The judge will be, of course, Christ. The judged will be all people, believers and unbelievers, who've ever lived, including the fallen angels. We've seen that the standard of judgment will be everything that we and all people have done in our lives, whether good or evil. And also, of course, Christ will look into the book of life. That is, he will determine who indeed has been saved by his grace and through his precious blood. And now let me move on then to our second main point this afternoon, which is the question then, why does there have to be this final judgment? Why is it necessary and what is its purpose? And I ask and I raise that question, dear friends, because Christians have often asked and wondered But aren't we judged already by God the moment we die? Isn't our eternal destiny already decided upon our death? Don't all persons, after they die, go either to heaven or to hell right after death? The answer to that is yes, they do, according to Scripture. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, verse 27, that it is appointed for all men to die, and thereafter comes judgment. There is indeed a judgment, merely upon death, to determine our eternal lot. And that's, of course, the reason why we call the judgment day the last judgment, or the final judgment. The first judgment takes place when we die, after we die. The last judgment takes place after the return of Christ. And so we ask, but why is that last judgment then necessary? And well, for a number of reasons. One is simply because not every person will have died. When Jesus Christ comes again, they are still living on this earth. And so obviously they will still have to be judged as to what their eternal destiny will be. But even for those who have already died, whose souls have either gone to heaven or to hell, For them too, the last judgment is still necessary. And why is that? Because you see, when we are judged the first time after we die, only our souls are judged and enter into an intermediate state of heaven. Or if one is an unbeliever, an intermediate state of hell. This is strictly then a personal, private judgment rendered to each person's soul as soon as they die. But after Christ comes again, our bodies will be raised from the dead, as we mentioned. We will all come to stand before Christ as full human beings, body and soul. And in our bodies and souls, we will then be judged publicly to go either into the new heaven and earth or into the hell that is eternal now that doesn't mean that people will get a second chance to be saved some people like to think that God will give persons who have not believed in him or in Jesus on earth that God will give them a second opportunity to repent and believe when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again but the Bible nowhere assures us of that or indicates that it it rather indicates that once we die the day of grace is past once we die Our ultimate destiny is determined, either to be forever with God in glory or to be forever apart from Him in the outer darkness. And that's why it's so crucially important always to believe in Jesus Christ before we die. So whatever the judge will tell us on the judgment day is not going to change. It's not going to change our final destiny, whether with God or apart from Him. But now, I haven't even mentioned yet to you the primary reason why there must be a final judgment. Why is there going to be this awesome day when when all humanity and angels will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? And let's note this finally then tonight and underscore this truth. The last judgment is not finally for all men, for us or anyone else. It's not for us. Obviously, it will involve all of us. But we are not the focus here of attention before that great white throne. The attention is on the king. The attention is focused on the judge, the glorious judge before whom sky fled away. This is the glory day of Christ for God and his son. That's the purpose for all of it. The Judgment Day is going to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. How is it for the glory of Christ? Well, first of all, by displaying for all humanity the sovereignty and the perfect justice of our Lord. Because on that day, we read in Philippians chapter 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine every knee bowing before Christ on that final judgment day, before his throne? Can you imagine, think of it, all the world's rulers, past and present, every single dictator, every single king and queen, every single president or premier, all of them kneeling, all kneeling before the king, the king of kings. Then they will know, indeed, who Christ is. And he will pronounce judgment on them according to their deeds. Even Satan, the archenemy of God, the prince of darkness, will bow before the Lord. And they will all have to say, You are Lord. Christ is Lord. But not only will they then know his sovereignty, his absolute sovereignty, but they will also have to know and hear Is perfect justice. Judgment Day is necessary to set the record straight, to make clear before the entire world that every person will receive his just sentence. Millions of people have suffered much from wicked rulers and depraved oppressors who may have defied all accountability, even though they've massacred millions on earth. And some have gotten away with it, but they will not get away with it before the throne of Christ. And all those who have lived lavish lives on earth and indulged in all kinds of sins and led millions astray and blasphemed God's own name and received the praise of men instead. But before the throne of Christ, their wickedness will be made known and they will be judged for everything they have done. Yes, on Judgment Day, it will be clear to everybody that God is perfectly just. And all will receive the sentence that is due them. The Lord is our righteous judge. As the Psalms say, righteous and just is the king of the nations. And what about us then? What about God's people? Are we any more worthy than the wicked? Must we not also acknowledge the righteousness, and the justice of God on that judgment day? Oh, yes, we will too. We too will bow the knee before the King of kings and the judge on the throne. We too will proclaim his sovereignty. We too will extol his justice. But there's one key difference between believers and unbelievers on that day. Believers will not only praise Christ for his justice, but they will also Sing the praise of his love and mercy. On that judgment day, Christ will show his ultimate love, his ultimate mercy to all who have believed in him. And all the world will see it. But we who belong to Christ, we will sing it. Despite everything we've done, despite our unworthiness, the judge will say to his own people, Come, you blessed of my Father. Enter the kingdom prepared for you. Yes, the king on the throne will proclaim, You're mine. I've saved you with my blood. I've redeemed you. And I've promised you and will give you now eternal life with me in my new creation. And all to whom he says this will praise him for his amazing grace. You see, that's why there will be a final judgment day. It's for the glory of Christ. And that's why it will be a day of supreme comfort and joy for us as the children of God and the redeemed of Christ, as the catechism indicates. What a day that will be, first for the glory of God, but also for the comfort of his people. And so I ask you in conclusion, are you then afraid of it? Afraid of the judgment day? Well, if you've not placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, yes, then you should be afraid of that coming day because then you will hear the judge's sentence saying, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But if you've put your faith and hope in Christ alone, in that glorious judge on the great white throne, just remember that judge, is your Savior, who's died for you and made you his own. That should drive away all fear and replace it with all joy. As you hear the judge's final sentence, Come, you blessed of my Father, enter the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for the message that you have given to us. So thankful, O Lord, that we could, in a very small way, uh, meditate, reflect upon that great and glorious event that your word has laid before us. When your own son will sit on that great white throne next to you, the Lord God, and when there will be his his final judgment, upon all creatures and upon all of his people as well, but to their comfort and to their joy. O Lord, may we be found among those who will on that day claim that Savior, that judge as their own, as the one who has loved them and died for them. We thank you again that by your grace we have come to faith. It is not of ourselves, it is your gift to us. And so we ask that you will help us, O Lord, not to be fearful as we look ahead to that day, but may we indeed look ahead with anticipation and eagerness to the final glorification of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and our comfort then to be always with him. It is in his blessed name that we pray this. Amen.